Please remain standing and turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. Usually when we have a New Testament text, we'll have an Old Testament reading. It's a little unusual today. I'd like to read a New Testament reading from the Gospels. that will help us um, because it's sort of a parallel passage. Um, with some many resemblances to what we're going to be reading about in Acts. This is Mark chapter 5, verses 21 to 43. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. A great crowd followed him and thronged about him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him, the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear. Only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Amen. Let's turn now to Acts chapter 9. Our text will be 
verses 32 to 43. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping, showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then, calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we've arrived at an important transition point in the book of Acts. In fact, arguably the major turning point in the book is going to take place in the next chapter, chapter 10, and that's the conversion of Cornelius and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the Gentiles for the first time. Remember that sort of outline of Acts that's contained in Jesus' commission to the apostles uh, back in chapter 1. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And already the gospel has spread from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. And there's perhaps a foretaste or a preview of the Gentile mission that's yet to come um, in Philip's meeting with the Ethiopian in chapter 8. But that really full inclusion of the Gentiles is really going to kick off and be formally recognized by the church starting with the events of chapter 10. Now, that pivotal conversion of the Gentiles comes in in the middle, kind of sandwiched in the middle of a series of episodes all involving the Apostle Peter. And from chapter 13 on, I have a little ways yet to get to chapter 13, but from chapter 13, the rest of the book is going to mention the Apostle Peter, actually very little. 
It's going to come up hardly at all. It's going to be almost entirely about Paul and his missionary journeys and then his eventual arrest and journey to Rome. And, and that makes, then, this final set of episodes that do focus on Peter uh, very important um, and centering, of course, on that conversion of the Gentiles. But that set of accounts regarding Peter starts here at the end of chapter 9 with these two miracles involving Aeneas and Tabitha. And so what I'd like you to do this morning is to invite you uh, to think about these particular miracles as, as the lead-up to what's going to happen in chapter 10. To think, how are these two events preparing for what's to come? Are they setting the stage for that great leap, that great forward leap in salvation history that's, that's going to take place right around the corner? And so let me give you three points to organize our thinking this morning. First is Christ's healing power, verses 32 to 35. Second will be Christ's faithful servant, verses 36 to 39. And then third will be Christ's resurrection life. Verses 40 to 43. So Christ's healing power, Christ's faithful servant, and Christ's resurrection life. So first, Christ's healing power. Um, the first, I think, the really the most important thing to notice about both of these episodes is that um, each one echoes very clearly particular miracles that Jesus did during his earthly ministry. Uh, So you think first about um, Luke chapter 5. This was always one of my favorite uh, Bible stories when I was a kid about how the friends of the paralyzed man um, in in Luke, they couldn't get the stretcher with their friend on it through the press of the crowds that had gathered around Jesus in this particular house. And so they climbed up on the roof and they lowered the stretcher down uh, through the roof uh, to present the man right there at Jesus' feet. Skipped the line and jumped straight uh, to the front. Um, and at first, uh, Jesus, you may remember, doesn't do exactly what they were hoping that he would because he leads off by saying, man, your sins are forgiven you. Of course, the Pharisees question this, uh, rightly recognizing that Jesus has just claimed to do something that only God can do, to forgive sins. You remember how Jesus goes on to say, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And to everyone's amazement, he does exactly that. Okay, so now fast forward from Luke 5, past the rest of the ministry of Jesus, past the cross, past the resurrection, past Pentecost. And we end up here in Acts chapter 9. And here is the Apostle Peter now encountering another paralyzed man, Aeneas. Aeneas has been bedridden for eight years, it says. Uh, Once again, emphasizing how helpless, how permanent this man's condition is. This isn't just a temporary fit or something that he's experiencing. It's like the man in chapter 3. You remember the the lame man in chapter 3? Luke said he was lame from birth. Again, emphasizing that from a human point of view, this man's condition is beyond hope. And you may remember Luke was a physician 
by training. He's described that way later in the New Testament, Luke the physician. And, and so he, of all people, would have felt the weight of this case that he knew was far beyond the ability of first century medicine to be able to cure. What does Peter say in verse 34? There's no fancy speech. There's no kind of magic incantation or magical objects. It's just, it's just a simple statement of fact followed by a simple command and a simple response. Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. So let's think about this. Um, John Stott, in his commentary on this passage, draws what I think is very helpful uh, three-part connection between this miracle of Peter, actually both these miracles, and the parallel miracles of Jesus in the Gospels. Um, I'm going to pass that on to you. So the uh, Stott says that these two Peter miracles highlight the example of Jesus, the power of Jesus, and the salvation of Jesus. Example, power, and salvation. I want to unpack that a little bit because I think it gets to the heart of why these miracle accounts are here. First of all, Peter's following the example of Jesus. Peter's ministry is modeled after Jesus' ministry. He's continuing to do what Jesus was doing as he lived and taught and worked on earth. Um, Remember that the apostles' ministry in Acts, we should really see as the continuation of Jesus' ministry. Their lives are taking the shape of Jesus' life as they, like he, um, go out and bring salvation to the lost, as they proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God, as they suffer for Christ's name. They're taking up their crosses and following him, which is what every disciple of Jesus is called to do, right? Now we think about this and translate it into our own experience, we have to understand, of course, you and I are not apostles. Um, the, the miraculous signs that authenticated this foundational apostolic ministry of Peter and the other apostles in this first generation of the church, um, those are finished. That, that foundation has been laid. It cannot be laid again. It's, it's there. Um, that's not to say that God can't or doesn't still do miracles. He does. It's just to say that our ordinary expectation for, uh, should not be for him to do those kinds of extraordinary things through our hands in the day-to-day ministry of the church. That's not what the New Testament teaches us to expect now. This is part of the foundation laying of the first generation and the apostles in particular. However, that being said, the church's ministry today is still to follow the example and to take the shape of Jesus' ministry in this respect, that we are to accompany words with actions. We are not merely to proclaim the gospel. We are to live it out. We're to show and not just tell it. The church's ministry should always be a ministry of both word and deed, with the word as foundational and the deed accompanying and illustrating and authenticating it. There's a sense in which still today our actions authenticate. They lend credibility to our message. Soften people's hearts to receive it. I like the hymn, uh, Lead On, O King Eternal, where it says, For not with swords loud clashing, or roll of stirring drums, with deeds of love and mercy, the heavenly kingdom comes. 
Of course, it's not just the deeds. It's the proclamation of the gospel, fundamentally. But it's the proclamation of the gospel accompanied by deeds of love and mercy. And those deeds of love and mercy are not the gospel any more than healing this man's paralysis is what saved his soul. No, making him walk again did not save his soul. But what, what they do is they illustrate the gospel. They confirm it. They soften people's hearts to take it in. And so what we have to understand is if we only tell people the gospel message verbally, but then we show a complete carelessness about every other part of their lives, well, then we undermine that message that we so badly want them to hear and embrace. We need to accompany words with actions, as we see lived out in the life of the apostles, as they saw it lived out in the life of Jesus. All right, second thing, um, the apostles' miracles show not just the example of Jesus, uh, and that's probably the third most important here, but they show the power of Jesus. Notice Peter doesn't say, in the name of Jesus, um, I heal you, Aeneas, I pronounce you healed. Taking the uh, celebrity, uh, accumulating that kind of celebrity status to himself, I can heal you because I have this special connection, this in with Jesus through the Holy Spirit, that I have this special gift, I can do this. That's not what Peter's doing. He's not drawing attention to himself. And he is showing in the way that he does this miracle that the power for this miracle doesn't come from Peter. It comes from Christ alone. And again, we think, well, I don't have that problem. I've never been tempted to say that I was healing somebody instead of Jesus healing them. I've never been part of a healing miracle. But still, let's think about adjusting for where we are in salvation history now. This is another mistake that we need to be aware of when we act like we can personally be people's savior. If we, can, if we can just do enough to help them, maybe, or if we can just come up with the right words to say, or if they would just listen to our advice, then I could be the savior. And, and so we get into this mode of, of trying to um, be the, the hero ourselves, which is very counterproductive. It's even self-destructive. Because the fact is, you can't save anybody. I can't save anybody. Salvation belongs to the Lord. We cannot save anybody any more than we can heal somebody from their paralysis. Peter says, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. That needs to be our attitude when we share the gospel with people. Not, look at me, listen to me. Let me save you. I'm your last best hope. Where we have that need for people to depend on us for to, to see us as the source of their um, hope and, and life and want people to, to depend on us. No, that's wrong. It's Christ alone who saves. And ultimately, if we're, if we're pointing our people to ourselves, that will consume them and it will consume us in our own selfishness. Listen to what 2 Corinthians 4 or 5 says, and this ought to be our motto for, for the proclamation of the gospel. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Okay, now I said there were three things from Stott that we see in these miracles. The example of Jesus, the power of Jesus, and then third, the salvation of Jesus. And that third one I'm going to save for the end, because remember, these apply to both miracles. For now, I want to move on and actually look at the story of 
Tabitha. Let's move on from Lydda then and go to nearby Joppa. Joppa is on the, on the shore of the Mediterranean Sea. Um, by the way, it's, it's quite likely here that we're talking about a town that had already been reached with the gospel, uh, at least by Philip, back in chapter 8. Remember how after meeting with the Ethiopian, the Holy Spirit um, carried Philip away, and he found himself at Azotus. Uh, that's near the coast to the south of Joppa. And it says, he, uh, he, as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea, and that's north of Joppa. Joppa's in between Azotus and Caesarea. And so surely he would have passed through Joppa and preached the gospel there along the way. Um, so that's interesting context, connecting chapter 8 and chapter 9, Philip with Peter. And remember how Peter followed Philip to Samaria as well. Um, and so there's a, a common pattern here. Now, there was in Joppa, it says, a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. Luke possibly uh, likely writing to someone who's originally a Greek speaker, not originally an Aramaic speaker, translates the name. Both of these names mean uh, gazelle. One, the, uh, Tabitha is Aramaic for gazelle. Dorcas is Greek for gazelle. And she, Tabitha, uh, that's Tabitha, Luke continues, Tabitha was full of good works and acts of charity. This is why we're calling the second point Christ's faithful servant. That's what Tabitha was. Tabitha was this much-beloved member of the church in Joppa because of all of the ways that she had given herself to serving and helping other people. Uh, particularly the widows that you see in verse 39, weeping and showing Peter the, the tunics and the uh, other garments that Dorcas made for them uh, while she was with them. This is a good reminder for us, uh, I told you many times before, that the church's uh, mercy ministry is the work of the whole church. It's the work of the whole church, not just the deacons. Yes, it is um, headed up by those ordained servants, the men that God has called to lead and to mobilize the church for that work. But just because you're not a deacon doesn't mean that you're not called to show compassion to people who can use your help, our help, all of us. And so when it says she was full of charity, uh, that term charity can have kind of a, a negative ring to it for some people if it conjures up the impression of kind of a, a self-righteous do-gooder, um, kind of on a high, high horse pretending to be better than other people. But the original meaning of the term charity is simply love. And the Greek word here derives from the word for mercy or compassion. So th this woman is the opposite of self-righteous. She's showing a Christ-like compassion. She's following in the steps of her Savior, who when he saw the crowds, remember, had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That ought to be our attitude when we seek to help those who have needs that we can meet. Oh, you can imagine what a loss it was for the church in Joppa when this, when this woman died. Because she had, had touched so many people's lives so deeply. Just think of the, the outpouring of, of grief and the way people must have come together to weep and to comfort each other. So many people missing her so much. It reminds me of when I went to the funeral for uh, Terry Verlindi, um, our sister church Oakwood, a couple of months ago. That outpouring of sorrow. So many people had been touched by her life. And somebody says... 
you know, we heard the Apostle Peter's nearby. Maybe we should ask him to come. It's not clear to me if the people who, who ask him to come are, are, are uh, just wanting his, his comfort and his pastoral care for the church there, or, or, or if they're already hoping for a miracle of some kind. Um, what I do think is clear, though, is that Luke, uh, in the way that Luke is recounting this, is that he's, he's deliberately drawing a parallel, bringing out, not drawing, but bringing out the parallel between this story and the healing of Jairus' daughter by Jesus. In, in, uh, in, in Mar- actually, it's recorded Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, it's not just that the ending is similar. Um, it's this earlier part as well. Uh, Jairus comes to ask for Jesus' help, and Jesus goes with him. Uh, here Luke says, So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived... It says they took him to the upper room. But even as we see those similarities between Jesus and Peter, we also want to notice the differences, because they're equally important. When there's a comparison, the contrasts are also very important, right? Uh, so uh, Jesus, think about it, when Jesus heals uh, or raises um, the little girl, he doesn't pray before he raises her. He, he simply speaks to her on his own authority, right? He just says, little girl, I say to you, arise. Peter, it's different. Peter says, says he put them all outside like Jesus did. He knelt down. He prayed. See, he's not doing this on his own authority. He is seeking the power of Christ. He knelt down and, and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And Remember how Jesus raised the daughter of Jairus when he said, Talitha, which means little girl, arise. And uh, Mark helpfully gives us those original Aramaic words that Jesus used. Um, Talitha, Tabitha, they sound very similar, and Luke is bringing out that similarity. He's drawing our attention to this close match between what Jesus did then and what Peter is doing now. But Peter is doing it not by his own power. He's doing it by the resurrection power of Jesus. And it says, and she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up and he gave her his hand and raised her up. And so earlier I was talking to you about Stott's three-part framework for, for seeing this connection between Jesus' work and Peter's. Uh, it's easy enough to see the example of Jesus in the way this miracle happens. Um, we've also seen the power of Jesus display that Peter prays that it's Christ's power is what Here's the paralyzed man. It's what gives life to that Tabitha's body. But the third thing you remember was the salvation of Jesus. How did both of these miracles illustrate Jesus' salvation? Because that was the purpose of Jesus' miracles, right? Uh, the miracles of Jesus and, and those of the apostles following after him were always to accompany and illustrate and authenticate the message of the gospel. You can't separate them out. Um, as though, well, Jesus came proclaiming the gospel, and he also came doing miracles. And no, no, they're they're all of one piece. The healing of the paralyzed man in Luke five, uh, when they dropped him down through the roof, lowered him through the roof. Remember how Jesus began that conversation: "Man, your sins are forgiven you." Jesus has the power then to heal us from our spiritual paralysis. Because that's what our bondage to sin is like, right? It Sin binds us. It freezes our hearts in bondage to our worst desires, to our worst habits, 
and attitudes and patterns of speech and patterns of thought that do not please the Lord, that wreak destruction on every part of our lives. And we can no more get free from those things under our own steam than a paralyzed man can get up and make his own bed. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, that paralyzed man could get up. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, Christ releases us from that inward spiritual paralysis. Just as surely as he released Aeneas from the bondage that kept his limbs from moving. Well, if that picture of the gospel is so abundantly clear in the healing of those two paralyzed men, how much more clear is it when, by the power of Christ, that little girl and this dear woman are raised from death itself? That's the ultimate illustration of Christ's saving power. That's what's happening every time Christ brings a person from spiritual death to spiritual life. Think about how on the cross, Jesus himself passed through death. He has is, he is entered into the grave for us. But why did he do that? He did that so that he could defeat death, so that he could break its power over us. And the power of death is not just about the disintegration of our bodies. It's part of it. But death starts within us. Death starts within us. It's the power of death on the inside that we most need freedom from. It's that icy grip that paralyzes our hearts, that makes it impossible for us to choose the right way, impossible to follow God, to listen to his voice, to experience his blessing, unless... Unless the power of Christ breaks in and melts that icy grip of death, calls us from death to life, makes us alive by the power of Christ, who himself passed through death, but conquered it in the resurrection. Now, I mentioned earlier that these two miracles are setting the stage for chapter 10, right? The conversion of the Gentiles. That Connection may not be immediately obvious, but let's think about this. That conversion of the Gentiles, their incorporation into the church is is going to be a major sea change in the church's life. It's it's actually going to be kind of a a hard pill to swallow for many of the people in what, to this point, has been an almost completely uh, Jewish church. Um, In fact, one, one commentator I read argued that perhaps Christ is even preparing Peter himself through these miracles for what he's about to experience, where he's about to lead the church through. Reminding him, reminding the church, that the risen and reigning Jesus Christ is mighty to save. That he is sovereign over the bodies and the souls of his people. And that he is able, supernaturally, to do what we would ordinarily expect to be impossible. That's something that Peter and the predominantly Jewish church needed to know. The church is going to need to have those facts of the sovereign reign of Christ and his total power and authority over the bodies and souls of his people firmly in their minds as they come to terms with the inclusion of the Gentiles in chapter 10. I think that those same truths are just as important for us living in a moment of church history in some ways very different from this one. Of course, we are... 
we are living with the benefits of the inclusion of the Gentiles, right? We're, we, we're very comfortable with the ideas of, of, idea of Gentiles being part of the church because otherwise we would be out. On the other hand, though, many of our struggles are still very similar and our hearts are still the same fundamentally. Our need is still the same fundamentally as the church in the first century. Our need to trust in the almighty power of Christ. Our need to follow in his steps of mercy and compassion as servants of Christ. Never to limit artificially by our unbelief, by our prejudice, by our fear. The almighty salvation of Christ that can bring movement to a paralyzed soul. Life to a dead heart. Because the Lord Jesus Christ is as majestic and as merciful and as mighty to save now as he was then. And if he saved you, if he's brought you in, then through his word today, he's also sending you out. Sending you out to make known his message. To illustrate it and accompany it with his mercy in your actions and to trust body and soul and his might to accomplish what he sent us out to do as his people. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for these stories of Aeneas and Tabitha. We thank you for the almighty power of Jesus to bring movement where there is bondage, to bring life where there is death. And Lord, we ask that you would please strengthen our faith and make us faithful servants of the Lord Jesus to both proclaim and to demonstrate that mercy and compassion of his to those who need to hear it from our mouths and through our hands. We ask these things in his name. Amen.